our time this morning in a word of prayer. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We ask that as we think about the text this morning and think about the things that are found here, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts and that we would see the truth for what it is and for not what we want it to be. We just ask that you would be with me, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, that I may share your truth in a way that is understandable and correct and that would lead people towards your son and towards following you. We just thank you for today. We thank you for this morning that we have and uh, for the fellowship that we've already had. We just uh, thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So, got to admit, the sermon may be a little strange this morning. When you sign up to be an expositor, there's really no sign up that when you determine to be an expositor, uh, and you, you pick a book, you go through the subjects that come to you, not because you want to talk about them, but because that is the next verse that is, is found. In fact, a, an expositor's mantra is the next verse, right? And so this morning, um, we're, we're going to talk about a subject that always makes me feel very uncomfortable when I talk about it. And I suppose I could have just skipped it, but that's not the gig, right? So this morning, we're going to be in Proverbs 16, verse 10 through 15. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the portrait of a wise king. Now, this is a little awkward for us as Americans because we do not have a monarchy. So obviously there's going to be some things that are not going to directly apply to us that applied back then. And I suppose as we think about this subject, we're going to be thinking about the government and the believer this morning. And before we even start, I'm going to lay out a couple temptations that may happen as we listen to a sermon like this. The first temptation really would be this, would be to take this text and measure our political opponents by this text and therefore stir up fear, anger, resentment, and react not in a biblical way, but in an emotional, irrational way. We don't want that, right? That's not a good thing for us as believers, There's another temptation. It might be the complete opposite, by the way, is because everything has become so politicized in our culture right now that even going to a football game now, there's a political stance with that, that the temptation may be, as you're listening to the sermon, tuning out some of the things that are said because everything is so political, you're just used to tuning things out. That's not good either, to just bury your head in the stand and not think about these things. In fact, even the temptation for me may be even to soft-pedal some of these things that we're going to see this morning, and that's not good either. One other temptation that I, that I do see, it's somewhere in the middle between these two, but maybe one that is too common, which is you will hear this text and these thoughts, 
and you will just yell at the government and rebuke the government, but they can't hear you. You do this in your car on your ride home. Pastor was right. The, the government does that, and the government's not doing that. And you're talking to no one, but you feel justified that you threw holy rocks at someone who couldn't hear and has no chance of repentance or giving their side of why they made the decision. We don't want that either. This is not just an opportunity to rant and rave about politics. We want real biblical answers and principles on how to think through these things so that we as believers will respond in a way that is biblical and honoring to Christ. That's the desire. But we have all of these temptations around us. So this morning, you and I, we're going to be walking a very thin line And we're going to avoid some of these temptations, Lord willing. And we will look at the wonderful truth that is found here in Proverbs 16, uh, verses 10 through 15. And this morning, I really want to point out three things. Two things from the book of Proverbs and one from the book of Titus. Because this is talking about the government and we're not governing officials, uh, I, I think it's important just to have more of a sermon than just know what a wise government looks like, but what is the actual responsibility that a believer has as a citizen? And so that's why we're going to go to Titus 3.1. But here's the three things I want you to see. In Proverbs 16, 10 through 12, we're going to see the responsibility of a wise king. Right? So here's a portrait. Here's the responsibility that the king takes on when, when there's a wise king. These are the things that he takes care of. In 13 through 15, we're going to see the attitudes and interactions of a king and of a wise king. And then we're going to then go to Titus 3.1, and we're going to look at the responsibility of the believer. So let's look at this. Let's look at the responsibilities of a wise king. And notice what it said in 16.10. It says, A divine decision is in the, lip, in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. So here we see the first responsibility. And the first responsibility would be to follow the Lord. That's really the first responsibility of a, of a wise king. And this is what the wise king does as he listens to the Lord. This phrase, a divine decision, is an interesting word. It, it literally means divination. So a divination is in the, in, in the lips of a king, but it's said in a, not in a negative way of, a, of how a pagan would go about trying to listen to the voice of their God. This is speaking in a positive light of a king who listens to God's decisions. Now, we need to do a little bit of systematic theology here, right here. We need to understand that when Solomon wrote this particular text, that was in a different dispensation, a different time, different rules, different house rules governed the world. And at that time, the way that God communicated to people is quite different than how he communicates to us. So let me just show you this. Go with me quickly to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Keep your finger there in in, in Proverbs. Hebrews, and we'll just go to the very first verse. 
It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So you get that, right? In the first verse, God spoke to the people in the Old Testament in various ways, right? He spoke to the fathers. There was lots of ways that he did it. And he used men known as prophets. Prophets, by the way, a prophet is someone who receives direct revelation from God and has a twofold message. The first is telling people you didn't obey the law, right? There's something that you didn't obey. The second part of a prophet is talking about something that will happen in the future, a future event. That's what a prophet is, okay? So he spoke to these men, through these men, in many different ways and in many portions, right? But notice what he says in verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, Now, when you read this, this means that Jesus is a far superior revelation than what was received in the Old Testament. And the idea is that if I want to know what God is saying, I go to Christ directly. I go to him directly, and that is the revelation. That is now how God is communicating to us. Paul will say in another book, we have the mind of Christ. We have the We have the canon in front of us and the Holy Spirit as he works in our heart. He leads us, he guides us, he teaches us, and helps us apply this text to our lives. That is how God communicates to us in the church. But Solomon is writing in this portion of verse 1. And in many ways and in many portions he spoke to us. So, back in the day when Solomon was writing, there was many different ways in which God spoke to people. He used what was known as a Urim and a Thummim. This was given to the high priest. Uh, We really don't know what it is, uh, but we have a guess, right? Scholars guess that it's most likely these colored rocks that they would ask a question and these rocks would be thrown on the ground and it was believed that the Lord would communicate his desired will for those people on the way that they would fall, right? So we're going to see this later when it talks about the casting of lots on the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. There's this real strong idea that when the high priest did this with the Urim and Thummim, this was God communicating. God communicated to kings and to people in the Old Testament through dreams. He communicated through visions. He communicated through angels. There was significant events that happened that were ways that God communicated. And so here, when I look at this passage in Proverbs 16.10, and it talks about a divine decision, it's speaking of one of these avenues in which the, the Old Testament kings had at their disposal for a decision. They were supposed to go to the high priest and ask the question of the high priest, consult the Lord, and after a time of prayer, they would then use this Urim and Thummim, and there would be then this decision that was made. That's the idea here, okay? Or one of these other avenues. And so a divine decision, notice what it says, it says is in the lips of the king. This does not mean, by the way, that every time a king spoke in the Old Testament, it was as if God himself was speaking. And do not think that this refers to anyone in the church today. Some people use this verse 
and they stretch it. Oh, man, they stretch this one because it could be easily stretched, right? And some have even suggested that there may be one pastor who lives in Rome who is a king who, when he speaks, he has the authority of God, and the justification for that may happen to be Proverbs 16.10. That is not what this passage is talking about. Notice the idea is that once the king knows this decision from the Lord, it is his responsibility to communicate that decision and rule from that decision. That's the idea of the king. Because notice, notice the next part of the parallelism. It says, his mouth should not err in judgment, meaning that there's, there's this possibility that he might hear what the Lord tells him to do, and he decides, based off of his own judgment, I'm going to do something else. Now, you may say, well, that, that makes sense for a king. How do we think about this in the United States? I, I would say that it's the same responsibility for every governing official that they should consult the Lord and make their decisions based off of the principles that are found in the New Testament. That's their responsibility. Guess what? That doesn't happen very often. Do not be surprised. Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, when you look at government, you will find corruption. Do not be surprised if there's corruption and sin in the governing authorities. Remember, this is a portrait of what a wise governor would look like, right? So when we're thinking of somebody that's a wise governor, it's not somebody who's going to help the economy. It's one who's making their decisions based off of the principles that are found in God's word. That's their responsibility, right? Now, part of this responsibility is kind of explained in the next two verses. Because notice what he says in verse 11. It's kind of an interesting jump. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. Now, just take that, just take that at face value. Think of this. God has this idea for all mankind. He has this expectation for all mankind that there should be justice. There should be fairness. Going down even to a measuring and scales. God is concerned about that. Notice that these things are from God and they're not from the king. Notice that the king cannot arbitrarily determine what is a fair balance and what is a fair weight. This is something that the Lord is the one who determines, right? This is, this is a sense of justice. The king is not arbitrary in this. He cannot just decide, okay, uh, now a pound now equals 40 pounds. He doesn't get to do that. He has to consult the Lord. And, and this is part of his responsibility, a just balance and scale. This is the type of thing that the Lord would want of the king. This is one of the things that he would expect of any governing official of just balances. Now, think about this. I, I'll be honest with you. Other than this passage, I don't think about this every day. Like, this is like a very menial thing. I know that I go and I get my gas, and that gas is measured, right? I know that I go to the grocery store, and I put produce on the scale, and I know that when, when I ring out, when I go to the checkout, and they, they, they'll have a scale there, and they'll determine the price of some of that produce on the scale that's right there. 
But I don't really think about that, right? I don't think, I don't sit there and go, huh, I wonder if that's a properly calibrated scale. But the Lord does, right? I mean, that seems like a really menial thing. But think about how important that is. How important that is in everyday society. If, if we knew of one grocery store that purposely tipped the scale so that you would pay them more money for less food, we would all say, don't go there. They're cheating you. They're defrauding you. God is concerned about that stuff. And it's the responsibility of the king and the governance to be concerned about such things. Notice what he says in the second part. And he says, all weights of the bag are his concern as well. So God is also concerned, not only with the scale, but the measurement that is used, the counterweight. In the ancient world, they had a lot of different tricks. And I imagine, I'm, I don't know how many of you have ever been to an open market where they had this type of stuff. Uh, where they had hand scales and they weighed things out with scales and you have no idea whether the scale is calibrated or the weights are somehow uh, changed so that you're paying more money for less. Uh, But they had numerous tricks that would weight the scales or they would hollow out the weight so that, you know, you would have to, so that if you were trying to buy something, your weight would say one pound, but it's really... 0.7, and you would actually get a little bit more, right? Or they would get a little bit less. God's concerned about that type of fraud. And and, and in a sense, it's a responsibility of a wise king who's, who's looking at the decisions of the Lord to make sure that these things are happening. By the way, when it says, when, when it says that he should be thinking about the things that God says, He also should be concerned, back in verse 10, he should also be concerned with God's word. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he's only concerned about going to the Lord on big decisions. These are even little decisions. Now notice what he says in verse 12. Still speaking of this responsibility, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. Now, I think we would all say, well, isn't that an abomination for anyone? Yeah. So guess what? It's also an abomination to a king, right? No, no, uh, no head scratcher there, right? If it's an abomination for all people, a king is part of people, therefore it would be an abomination for him. But, but in the ancient world, and it may even appear sometimes when we look at the news, we may, we may even sometimes get the idea, well, it seems like those who are in power might even be above the law. This is an important verse to let everybody know. No, no one is above the law of God, right? Everyone is held accountable to God. And in the ancient world, the king was it. When he made a law, it was the law. He was literally above the law. He could make a law and then disobey that law. And when they went to go prosecute him, he said, I just changed the law and you can do nothing about it. This is unique. This is unique in the ancient world of suggesting that a king can commit a wicked act and that he can commit an abomination and that he is held accountable to a higher power. By the way, it's kind of interesting when it talks about this wicked act. It's the word that's generally used for sin and can mean a lot of things. And in the the Old Testament, this word for wicked is used for a lot. It, it, It speaks of any activity that's done 
that goes against the law of God or the character of God. Okay? So any time that he sins a little or big, it's an abomination. Guess what? Same for you and I, by the way. Same thing. It also would speak of violent acts. In fact, there's even a time where this word is used, speaking of a, of a neighboring nation, saber-rattling against another nation and seeking to overthrow that one government, right, found in the book of Psalms. That type of thing is an abomination, right? This word is used for any type of breaking of any civil law, of fraud, or of deceit. All of this is an abomination, and a wise governing official is going to avoid these things. But then notice what it says in the second part of verse 12. It says, for a throne is established on righteousness. See, a wise, a wise king, a wise governing authority knows that righteousness has to be the foundation of everything that they do. And a wise w- person will go to God's word, see what righteousness actually looks like, and then tries to implement that in his policies. It's what a wise king would do, right? Little, little spoiler for you, just in case you don't know and you live under a rock and your head's in the sand. This doesn't happen very often. It just doesn't. The governing officials are sinners. Once again, do not be shocked if they sinned. This is a portrait of somebody who is seeking to be wise. I only know of one king who could ever say this, verse 12, this end part of verse 12, in all honesty and no deceit, and that king hasn't, hasn't uh, set up his throne yet. That's going to be Jesus in the millennial reign. That's it. The only other kingdom I know of that truly built their system of government on the law of God was Israel back when God gave it to Moses. I mean, he literally dictated it to Moses. That was built on righteousness. You get the point. This doesn't happen very often. But it's something that is still their responsibility. By the way, I would even go as far as to say, this is the responsibility of every single person in this room. Let's forget about the kings for a moment. It's an abomination for any one of us to act wickedly. And our lives should be built on righteousness. And if it's not, that's a bad thing. It's an abomination to the Lord. And all of us are striving to live for Christ. And we know how complicated our lives are. Imagine trying to be in charge of a whole bunch of other people trying to do this. Not an easy task. But still, this is their responsibility. These are the things that they're supposed to be doing. Now, in the the next part of of this passage, we're going to look at the attitudes and the interactions of a wise king. And, And notice what it says in verse 13. Speaking of a wise king, it says, Righteous lips are the delight of kings. He who speaks right is loved. Now, many of us would would point out, well, this isn't always true, right? When people speak what is right, sometimes government officials don't like that. But remember, this is talking about a portrait of a wise king and a wise king who wants righteousness to be part of the land. And so anytime anything that's said that is righteous and coincides with God's word, of course a king or a governing official would delight in those things. 
But let, let, let's even say this. Let's even say this. Let, let, let's just say kind of all things are equal. You're a believer. You're living in a community. You happen to come in contact with a governing official, and you, are, you talk to him, and you speak as a Christian should speak. Do you think that that governing official would like you or not like you for telling the truth, for being humble, for saying things as they are, for being polite and kind, being loving and compassionate and empathetic, concerned about right and concerned about what is wrong. Do you not, do you not think that a governing official would go, yeah, that's good. That, that's good that there's people like this underneath me. But this is the attitude of a wise king, right? And a wise king says, yes, I love whenever righteousness is spoke and it's spoken in a righteous way. And anyone who speaks what is right, yes, they, they love them. And this, this phrase for love is this idea of a, of a, deep, of a deep liking, right? Now, it's, it's easy to upset a king So notice what he says in 14. He says, The fury of a king is like a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. It's a little bit of a debate here of what does it mean by the fury of a king. I I really believe that this fury is is in conjunction with appeasement. And so I don't think that this is just some... Uh, spoiled brat little prince who didn't get his way and he gets upset when people don't give him what he wants. I don't think that's the idea here of fury. I I think the idea of fury is someone seriously broke the law or broke a protocol that offended the king and offended the laws that he laid down. And and the, the idea here is once when you see that king angry, that means we in today's modern vernacular, Heads are going to roll, right? You know what that means? Heads are going to roll. It means things are going to get serious. They're going to get serious real quick. Just observe this, by the way, just, to, just being an observer of things and politics. Don't you see this even in our own country? When, when regardless of how, how corrupt you think our, our system is and how, how weighted you might think it is, isn't there a sense when once the government gets upset about something, it throws everything it has against that one thing or that one person? And, and it, it, is, it is, we will shut you down. This is true even to this day. But notice, a wise man... Even a wise man who makes a misstep, who does something really stupid that he shouldn't have, he will approach this king, who's a wise king, and he will be able to appease it. He will, through his wisdom, through his love of righteousness, through his repentance, through his humility, maybe even speaking on behalf of somebody who has wronged the king, he may be able to even speak into the situation and subside the wrath of the king because the king is a wise king who thinks righteously. And then notice what it says in verse 15. It says, In the light of king's face is life. In his favor is like a cloud with spring rain. The idea is, if you do what is right, 
and the king likes you, that is a good thing. There's a lot of good things that come from a king liking you. Now, we look at this text, we think about this text, and we say, well, that sounds all great and dandy and fine, but I'm a Christian, and I live in the United States. I don't have a king. Uh, We have elected officials. They might think of themselves as kings, but they're not officially kings. Um, What do I do with a text like this? First of all, just know this, that when you are voting, this is a good little thing to keep in mind for the type of people that we should be voting for, right? We should be voting for wise, righteous people. And if we can't find wise, righteous people, I would say that sometimes finding the closest thing to it is also beneficial. But it, I also realize this, kind of like what Steve said last week. I'm not 100% sure I've ever talked to anybody in the government that was really important. And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not even sure anybody's listening to what I'm saying now. Like, I don't think, I don't think the NSA is really concerned about us talking. And I don't think that they're going to listen to this and go, oh, we got to get this to President Biden right away, and President Biden listens to it, right? I don't think that's happening. So the question is, what's our responsibility as a believer to things like this, to, to the government? What's our responsibility as a believer? Notice that I'm saying as a believer and not as a citizen. I think that's important, and I just want to say this before we go to Titus 3. Our first allegiance, hands down, without any question, without any doubt, should be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our allegiance, unquestionably, should be to the Scriptures. That's it. We should be such a follower of Jesus that that's the thing that we should be known for. Okay? I think that's, I think that's the type of thing we should strive for. So we are believers, and we happen to live in the United States. I also believe that the principles that we're about ready to read apply to every single Christian that has lived in all over the world throughout the ages and that there is no exception clause for any believer who's lived under any other government. Now, I say that knowing that some of us were thinking through the Constitution as we're about ready to read some of these things, and there's going to be some some natural kickback that we have as Americans. And I, and I want to I stop that because we're first believers, right? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm in the United States. This is the place I would choose to live, right? Uh, there's a lot of principles that are found in the Constitution that I agree with. I'm, I'm not saying let's tear the whole thing down. But what I'm saying is Jesus died on the cross for my sins. My hope is found in Jesus my allegiance is to his word. That is it. Unquestionable. That's the attitude we should have. And the commands that were given were given when the United States were not around. And the expectation of those Christians in other government systems is the same expectation for us, even though we live in the United States. These are timeless. So let's go to Titus 3. Here's, here's, here's what I think we should do based off of this. Not that we go home and yell at, yell at the government and say, oh, you should, have just, you should have just heard the sermon today. You should read this passage. 
I think we need to know about these things. I, I think it's important that we, we, we have a, a scriptural mind about the government. But here is our responsibility. Titus 3.1. Remind them. This is a command. Remember when we were going through Titus? This was a command. This was a command from Paul to Titus. He's telling Titus, remind them of this fact. What things is uh, is Titus supposed to say to the believers on Crete? To be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The idea is to remind people of this means that they can forget about it, means that they will possibly struggle. Know that we are not the first Christians that have ever walked the face of the earth that have struggled with the government and some of the government regulations and trying to figure out how we as Christians navigate through it. We're not the first, and we're definitely not going to be the last. That's why there needs to be the constant reminder of this truth. But notice what the reminder is. To be subject to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient. Now, when I read this, I'm going to be honest here, if I'm allowed to be honest and transparent, and, and hopefully when you judge me, it, will, it, will, it won't be to my face, it'll be harshly on the way home. When I read, do not, to be subject to them, my first thought is, but when can I not be? Like, when, when is it time for me not to be obedient? That's how I think. I grew up in Wyoming. I grew up in Texas. I grew up in Idaho. It's kind of like the thing that you do when you grow up in those states to just say, whenever you hear the government, let's go get them. That's my first thought. And this morning as I was reading it, I thought, that's a bad thought because that's not the intention of the text. The intention of the text should be in my heart, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to be subject. That's it. And the thought that I had was, I will know when it's time for me to not be obedient. Let that worry for itself. My job is to be obedient. When the government, and the government may, who knows? I'm not a prophet. I don't know. They may, they may not. They may ask us to do something that clearly violates God's word. Guess what? There's no debate there. You obey God rather than man. But that does not mean, notice what this says. It says, subject yourselves to rulers That does not mean that you then jettison the rulers because they make one bad law. You notice that, right? It's to the rulers and to authorities. The idea is you try to be as obedient as you can because this is what God asks of us as believers. Hmm. So I get the idea of subject, right? Okay, I'll, I'll step in line. But then when I read the word obedient, that, that just hurts, doesn't it? Doesn't that hurt where you go, be obedient? Be obedient? You mean even, even in that stupid speed trap right by, by Fort uh, Clatsop where you're supposed to be going 55 and then all done, it, it shoots down to 35? You mean if I'm going 40, God's concerned about that obedience too? Yeah, I think he is. I don't like that he is, but I think he is. You get my point. The point is, as believers, our first default position is, I'm going to be obedient. 
Now, I know that in the past two years, there's been a lot of discussion about the church and about the government, especially when concerning these little mask things, concerning all sorts of stuff. And truly, there are different believers who have different opinions based off of their conscience. But as I'm looking at the word and as I prayerfully look through the word, I do not see an exception clause for me here when it talks about being obedient and being subjective as an American to say, as long I can be obedient and, 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 and subjective as long as my rights are not being infringed. I don't see an exception clause there. I would say that when, it, when, when it's time for us not to be obedient, it will be so obviously clear that there will be no debate that what they're asking us to do is clearly in violation of God's word. Other than that, our default principle should be, I'm going to be obedient because that's what God wants. That's, that's what he has for us as believers. And this is the expectation of every believer. Let me end with this. You realize that during the time of Paul, who the governing authority was, right? It was Rome. And you know who the ruler was at the time, right? It was Nero. Nero was not known for his love and courtesy towards believers and believers' rights. In fact, Nero is reported to impale our brothers and sisters while they're alive, put tar on their body, and set them on fire while he had a party. We're not talking about somebody who is so pro-Christian. We're talking about somebody who set the city on fire and then blamed Christians and systematically tried to eradicate them. And it is in this context that the Apostle Paul says, be subject and obedient. You have to understand the seriousness of this. Paul is not calling for anarchy or revolution. He is calling for us to be so dedicated to Jesus Christ that he is number one. And that call for for us as believers is when possible, we are as obedient as we can, even if the government hates us and is trying to systematically try to take us out. That's the call of the believer. It's not fun. It's not always the best. may not be the most American, but it is the biblical thought. So, as we close up this morning, I just want to remind you once again that as believers, the number one message that we have is the gospel. It saddens me that the evangelical modern church is known more for its political positions than it is for the gospel. That really saddens me. It really, it really is a bad thing. And I ask myself, why are we known for our political positions opposed to the gospel? I think it's because we talk more about our politics than we do about our Savior. This morning, we need to get back to the Word of God, and we need to say, it's Jesus. It's the gospel. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 15.
Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are also saved if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But I delivered to you as of first importance. I don't think he means I gave you the gospel because this is the first thing that's important in a long line of other things. I think he says, I gave you the gospel because this is the most significant message. This is it. Everything that you and I believe, everything you and I, how we worship, how we think, how we live, is built upon the gospel. And the Lord knows that we need to always be reminded of the gospel and the significance of the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to think about the gospel. We're going to think about the gospel in the Lord's Supper, about how Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. And as we take these elements, each of these elements symbolize a different aspect of that message. As we think about the bread, that's his body that, that was broken on our behalf for our sins so that we might be right with God. And as we think about and as we drink the juice, that's to symbolize his blood, which was spilt for us so that we can be cleansed. This is the most important message. This is what makes us relevant in the world, no matter what culture we're in. And so this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to, once again, think about the gospel, think about the implications of the gospel in this really unique way that the Lord has, has given us. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come up, and 